and that's the series we're in right now, Close Encounters, uh, the stories that Jesus told should are supposed to inform the stories that we live, and I pray that that's, that's happening week by week as we go through this series. We have a wonderful story this morning. Uh, I read a story this week, uh, so it goes once upon a time kind of story. There was a gardener, and uh, he grew an enormous, enormous carrot, and uh, so he took it to the king of his kingdom, and he said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my token of esteem for you and my respect. And the king looked at him, and he was very touched by, uh, you know, by this simple act and this simple gift. And he looked at uh, the steward, and he thanked him. And as the steward turned and walked away, he said, wait, wait, wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot right next to your own, and I want to give it to you as, as a free gift, and I want you to work it, and I want you to be the gardener of it all. Well, the gardener was amazed and delighted, and uh, he danced on his way home, just rejoicing. Well, there's a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said to himself, my goodness, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if somebody gives him a really special gift? So the next day, the nobleman came back before the king, leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low before him. He said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest and the best horse that I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my token of respect for you. But the king, discerning his heart, merely said, thank you. And he stared at the nobleman and then, you know, nodded his head like someone does when the meeting's over. And the nobleman stood there kind of perplexed. So the king, seeing the confusion etched across his face, said, That gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. The world's generosity is oftentimes more about earning than it is about giving, I think. It's it's based on a bonus system, a lot of things that are called generosity. You tip the waitress big because she bent over backwards for you. You get a little, uh, you know, look at your realtor, give him a little bit extra commission because you know why he or she put off her vacation for two days to close the deal for you. I you know, put in extra time at the office on this massive project to push the company forward. I expect to reap more benefits. I expect to reap more of the profits. Mark Buchanan pointed out that lurking behind most forms of worldly generosity, think about it, lurking behind most forms of earthly and worldly generosity is this idea. There's something in it for me. Generosity oftentimes is not generosity. Oftentimes generosity is reward. Could we make our own generosity or mistake our own generosity for uh, simply chasing after reward? What do you think? 
Well, the story that uh, was just read for us by Liz centers around a landowner who had decided to enter into the, one of the most difficult businesses around 2,000 years ago. He decided that he was going to take the land that he owned or land that he was left or given and plant a vineyard. And he had great hopes that one day, if he was successful, if everything broke right, if the rains came, that he was going to make a good profit on, you know, on, on his efforts and he would make a lot of money and his business would get off the ground and he'd take care of his kids and blah, blah, and the whole thing. I have to tell you, planting a vineyard, as I said, was one of the most difficult things you could do at that time. A vineyard called for hard work, many more than regular hours. It was, in fact, uh, by one person's estimate, the most difficult form of agriculture. The, very most, the most difficult. It thrives best in peaceful conditions. If there's war, if there's things going on, it's not good. When, when an invading army came in, a lot of times just to destroy the people, destroy their psyche, destroy their spirit, they would destroy the vineyards. So when you destroy the vineyards, you're destroying the spirit of the people. And, and, but, you know, if, if it was a time of peace and you, you know, did what you're supposed to do and you cultivated it and watched it carefully, it would bear fruit in due time. In fact, uh, you can see how important it was because in the Old Testament, there's only two reasons why a guy can get out, of the, get, get out of the army, a year's service. They had a year compulsory service. Two things. You could delay it for a year. Number one, if you're getting married. Number two, if you're planting a vineyard. <laughs> so kind of equating marriage with the vineyard as far as getting time off. Now, here's something else you need to know. If you ever went to the Middle East, you have been in Israel, anywhere there, um, you realize something immediately when I was there in the year 2000. Uh, I saw that Israel is rich in one natural resource above all others, rocks. That's the, I think that's their natural resource. There is no shortage of rocks. Everywhere you look, there are rocks. In fact, an old rabbi once said this, when God created the world, he had two bags of rocks. One bag he spread throughout the world, and the other he dumped on Israel. And I think that's pretty true. So if you wanted to go into this business, you were assured Initially, when you were planting your vineyard of weeks and weeks and weeks of doing nothing but digging up and picking up rocks and making a wall around your vineyard, could you imagine at the end of those days, man, I tell you, of every size and every shape. Now, after all the preparation, the farmer then would carefully plant choice vines about three paces apart from one another in neat orderly rows, and he would water them, and he'd prune them, and he'd care for these struggling little vines, like, like a mother caring for a toddler that's just, you know, learning to walk. Do you ever see a mother or a dad when, when the baby's just starting to walk, and they're like, you know, they, they're kind of moving like this all the time, and they're, they're, they're never more than a few inches away? Well, that's, you know, if you kind of did that with these vines, because they're very temperamental, someday you would hope that, you know, you'd You'd have a great vineyard. And finally, the vines would mature some, sometime in July, and the grapes would begin to appear, and they would ripen, and they would reach their peak ripeness and peak size around the middle of September, very, very close to the rainy season. Now, this is, this is what you had. When, once you know, the grapes were at full size, you had two at the outside, three weeks that a farmer had, to gather in the entire crop, because if the rainy seasons came, you're dead. You would lose everything. You would lose all of your crop. Now, wealthy landowners, many times, uh, because they couldn't do it all themselves, they would hire temporary workers, especially during the middle of September there, when workers were needed for short, frantic periods of, of you know, kicking up the dust and, and picking those grapes. 
Again, if the, if the grapes were not harvested in those two weeks, tops three, the entire crop would be ruined. So the window for harvesting was very, very short. I remember when we lived in Denver when I was going to seminary, and uh, Marianne, uh, I was in school, and she worked at a retail score, uh, store by the name of Snowbird. And uh, they, they had a, several stores. And she, it's, uh, they sold clothing for men and women. But really, their market was, was ski wear. And uh, they would produce their own. They had a factory downtown Denver, and they would produce their own uh, jackets and ski wear and pants and all that kind of thing. And there's one thing they knew. Their entire year was between Thanksgiving and Christmas, just about. If, if they made it between Thanksgiving and Christmas, they would go on another year. Now, this was not some big conglomerate, so, you know, the hundreds of stores. They had, I think at the peak, they had three Three stores at their peak, okay? And uh, so every, every Thanksgiving, you know, he was like, this guy was sweating it out. And, uh, you know, every year they did pretty well until a couple of years after we last, left. I, I guess they had a bad Thanksgiving and Christmas and they went out of business. But, but you know what? I knew that I wasn't going to see Mary, Marianne a lot between that time. I knew that they were going to hire, and I knew they hired extra workers during that time. I knew they were going to be 12-hour days. But, you know, all of a sudden... There was December 25th was coming, and that was Liberation Day. Now, this owner was, was faced with a very similar situation. So the text tells us that he went out to hire extra workers to bring in the crop. And he went to the marketplace that was the equivalent of today's Union Hall. It's where men gathered early in the morning, tools in hand, in the hope of finding a, a day's work. And work began very, very early. It began at 6 a.m. That was the first hour uh, and it was before it got too hot, and it gets very, very hot there. The third hour then that verse 3 refers to uh, would be 9 o'clock. If, you, if the first hour is 6 a.m., just every three hours, so the third hour in Scripture is 9 a.m., the sixth hour would be then what? Would be noon. The ninth hour would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the twelfth hour would be 6 o'clock at night. So that's how it goes. So the landowner goes to the marketplace, and after a brief bargaining session, agrees to pay the men at 6 a.m. the standard wage, to come into his vineyard, to pick the grapes, standard wage. Standard wage then was a denarius. Now, there's no labor management agreements in those days, so there was always a verbal contract for the services of the men. And in the case of the first workers, None of them were skilled uh, you know, artisans, by the way. Who was, he was hired at 6 o'clock in the morning. They knew that they, you know, that was kind of the going rate, 12 hours of work for a denarius. Now, Jewish law demanded that all the laborers be paid the same day because the wages were often just enough to feed a man's family if he had a big family. Just enough. So you're working all day in the hopes that at the end of the day, you're going to receive your pay. And then the next stop, you know what the next stop would be after you went you know, to the paymaster's table? Was, would be where? It would be the marketplace because you got to feed your family. So they go from there and they go right into the marketplace. And you know what? If they didn't have work for that day, man, that was a disaster. So anyway, he goes out on, you know, during dawn's early light, and he hires some men, and he puts them to work harvesting the ripened grapes in his vineyard. And about three hours later of the first day of work, now this guy, you got to understand, you got two weeks, three weeks tops. This guy has got every single day worked out. He knows exactly how many rows have to be picked Every single day, on Monday, on Tuesday, by Wednesday, we should be here. By the end of the first week, we got to be here or we're in trouble. So after three hours, he has a pretty good idea. You know what? Uh, no, this is not good. So he goes back to Union Hall, 
And he hires some additional workers. Remember, two weeks. This is it. That's his whole year. And he hires some more men. And he makes that return trip. And verse 3 says this. This is what verse 3 says. Verse 3 says, about the third hour, he went out and saw some others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He did the same thing at noon. He did the same thing at three, you know, at the and you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. Every three hours, he's reassessing. He's getting together with his foreman. The foreman's saying, "Uh-uh, we ain't gonna make it. We need more guys." And it's not like these guys were slacking off. They just didn't hire enough men. Every third hour, they reassessed and they went out and they got more workers. Now. Did you notice the difference in these groups from the first group, the 6 a.m. group, the first hour, and all the other groups? Here's the difference. Of all the other groups, the 9 o'clock group, the noon group, the 3 o'clock group, the 5 in the afternoon group, an hour before quitting time, none of them had a financial cut-in-stone arrangement with how much they were going to get paid with the owner of the vineyard. There was no a day's wage for a day's work agreement with them. Some of the guys showed up at the 11th hour, literally at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. There's one more hour to work. They miss all, you know, the heat of the day. How much are you going to do in an hour? Basically, it's going to go, all right, go down this row. You know, it takes you 15 minutes to get going. You've got to work anyway, right? I mean, you've got to go to this. You've got to have a cup of coffee. You've got to say hello to this one, that one. So they go out. They're probably doing, maybe they're doing 35 minutes of work by the time they're done, right? And then all of a sudden, it's quitting time. It's all over. They work a single hour, if you can call that work. Here's the thing that they all had in common, though. None of them were in a position to haggle over wages. Here's why. They were all hungry. They probably all had families. They all wanted to work. They all would have done any kind of work. See, because when it comes to your family, you do anything, right? You will do anything. Anyway, they all finished the work. It was all about earning. See, here's the point. It was all about earning. It was about reward. Services were rendered, and now reward was expected. Here's the way the world works. We offer services, and we expect reward in return. That's expected. That's how things work in the world. Okay? Now, at the end of the day, the farmer instructed his paymaster to pay all the men. But he tells him to come up in this arrangement. This is very, very important. He tells them to come up, first the guys who worked an hour, then the guys who worked three hours, they're behind them in the next group, then the guys that worked six hours, a little further back. The last guys online are the guys that started at 6 a.m., and they, they look like, you know, sponges at this point. They, you know, their hair is out. They've been working 12 hours, climbing these vines, picking them. Their hands are bleeding. They're soaking wet. They're the guys, the worst-looking guys are the guys at the end of the line. So the 5 o'clock guys approach the paymaster's table, and you know what? What are you going to expect for an hour? You know, they're probably figuring out, you know, I, I, they're going to denarius for the entire day. Man, we're going to, you know what? We may have enough to buy a little bit of food, but for the most part, Rachel and I are going to feel our stomachs growling that we felt so often before. It's going to be the same way tonight. So he goes to the paymaster's table, and to his utter astonishment and delight, he receives a denarius, a full day's wages. Now, this guy, remember, he worked only an hour, but the gracious landowner paid him a full day's wage. And could you imagine when that guy held out his hand 
and the guy put a Daenerys in his palm, he probably danced home. And he went through the rest of the line. He was probably the happiest guy around. Well, wait a minute. Maybe not. You know who would have been happier than him? The guys in the rest of the line, right? They're watching what's going on. They see this guy who worked an hour get a full day's wage. His joy would have only been matched with the guys who were coming next in line. For surely, if this man worked an hour and got a full day's wage, certainly we are going to receive, you know, the amount commensurate with the long hours that we have endured. We've gone through the heat of the day. Now, look, you didn't have to be an MIT graduate to do simple math. One denarius equals one hour work, right? So what would three hours of work bring you, logically? Three the guys who are at the end of the line, who are, you know, just dying now after a whole day's work, are probably looking at that and going, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to get 12 days wages for working one day. Man, I would tell you something. How would you feel if this Thursday you go to look in your paycheck or you go on, online and you look at your bank account and you got 12 times what you normally weigh. Everybody goes on vacation this year, right? Everybody. Nobody's thinking about, you know, well, we, not this year, maybe not. We stay close to home. Europe. Everybody is, is getting on a plane and they're all heading overseas, right? Everybody. So the, the next group comes up, the guys who worked three hours. But as the guys who started work at 3 p.m. held out their hands, the paymaster looks up and puts what? A denarius in the palm of their hand. The same amount as the guy who worked an hour. And they looked at it, and I'm sure they turned around and looked at the other guys and kind of slowly walked away. See, something is wrong. Everybody's, we think, is now receiving the same amount. By the time the men who were hired in the early morning hours approached the paymaster's table, I'll bet they could barely contain their anger. You know, these guys are watching this whole scenario unfold in front of them. And as they look at the single coin in their hands, finally one of them, probably acting at the, spoke, the spokesman, lashes out at the owner. And he says in verse 12, he said, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. This is unjust. This is wrong. This is just plain wrong. This cannot stand. You know, where's the National Labor Relations Board when you need them, you know? What, folks, I got to tell you something. When we see injustice in front of our eyes, there's something about that that fries us, even on a small basis. I mean, I, gotta, I go down New Road every day, you know, drive my daughter to school, and it crosses 46, you know, exit 1 on 280, and there's two lanes that come together, but the guys on the left who get on the left, uh, they cheat the whole line, a lot of them. There's a line of 20, 30 cars, and these guys cheat the, le- the, the line. They go on down the left-hand lane, and then they put their blinker on when they get over Route 46 to make the right. They're all making the right, and they all know it. I want to tell you something, man. That fries me. And I will, I have at times almost crashed my car into the guy in front of me just not to let these guys in because these guys know exactly what they're doing and they do it every day and you see the same cars every day so it's not like oh gee i don't i don't even know what i'm doing i'm sorry can i please get it they know exactly what they're doing because they gun their engines and they try to sneak in i never ever let them in never (laughs) i never let them in and i gotta tell you something for me it's almost like i just trying to set the record straight a little bit here Just, just just trying to set the record straight okay but it doesn't it fry you 
When you see, and that's just wrong. It's plain wrong. You're cutting ahead of everybody else. We're all busy. We're all trying to get somewhere, okay? You're not, you don't, you're not the most important person. You're not the king, okay? It, fr- it fires us up when we see something like this. These guys were fired up. They were fried. So the guy starts yelling and screaming, basically, at the owner. The owner answers very quietly. Even I look at this and I say, it's almost, he answers almost warmly. And he says in verse 13, he says, but he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Yet, (laughs) there's something about that. He was born Richard David Falco in June of 1953, and his birth came about from an affair that his mother had had with a a married man who pleaded with her to abort the baby. Before he was a week old, he was adopted by hardware owner uh, Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, who reversed the order of his first and his middle name. Vincent Sanders wrote about David Berkowitz's childhood as, quote, somewhat troubled, Although above, of above average intelligence, he lost interest in learning at a very early age and began an infatuation with petty larceny and pyromania. Berkowitz's adoptive mother died of breast cancer when he was 13 years old, and his uh, home life, according to all accounts, became very strained in later years, particularly because he disliked his adoptive father's, his adoptive father's uh, second wife, He claimed later uh, that his new stepsister was interested in witchcraft, sparking an interest in the occult, which he pursued actively. His first attack occurred on Christmas Eve of 1975 with a knife. One alleged victim was never identified, but the other, by the name of Michelle Foreman, was injured very seriously, seriously enough to end up in the hospital. Not long afterwards, Berkowitz moved into an apartment in Yonkers, Then it began. From July 29, 1976, when he shot Jody Valenti and Donna Loria as they sat in a parked car outside of Loria's apartment, to July 31, 1977, when Bobby Violante and Stacey uh, Moskowitz were shot in a car while parked in Lover's Lane, David Berkowitz was responsible for the death of six people and the wounding of nine others, some who this day, 2015, still suffered grievous disabilities from being shot by him. On March 10th, 1977, seven months after the initial attacks, New York City Mayor Abraham Beam uh, stood before the cameras and he announced that the same 44 caliber Bulldog revolver had fired all the shots in the previous attacks. There was a killer on the loose in New York City, a mass murderer. That same day, Operation Omega Task Force made its public debut. They were charged with one job, to investigate the 44 caliber shootings and to bring this person to justice. 300 officers, 300 officers were given the task under Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd of bringing him in. 
Now, the crimes earned considerable mass media publicity, as you could probably guess, television, newspaper, radio, uh, publishing, dissecting every detail and speculation of the case, even before the media age in which we live right now. Unprecedented amounts of money were funneled to the NYPD to help solve the case. After the April 1977 killing of Alexander Esau, who was 20, and uh, Valencia Soriano, 18, of the Bronx, Berkowitz left a note at the scene of the crime, and he signed it simply, Son of Sam. On May 30th, 1977, columnist Jimmy Breslin of the New York Daily News received a a handwritten letter from someone who claimed to be the 44 caliber killer, suggesting that many more killings were on the way. The Daily News published the letter, and Breslin urged the killer to turn himself over to the authorities. 1.1 million copies of the New York Daily News was sold that day. The letter caused a panic in New York City. And based on references in the publicized portions of the letter, police received thousands of tips, all of them proved to be baseless. Since all the female shooting victims at that point had long, dark hair, thousands of women in New York City cut or dyed their hair, and beauty supply stores literally ran out of blonde wigs in all of New York City. Despite being one of the hottest summers on record, People stayed indoors at night, ignoring the long-standing New York tradition of spending sultry evenings outdoors. It became known as the Summer of Sam. The killings continued. Finally, on August 10th, 1977, all the detective work and a parking ticket, of all things, led to Berkowitz's Yonkers apartment, and when he emerged from the building shortly before 10, 10 a.m., carrying a 44 caliber bulldog in a paper sack, he was arrested. The killing spree was finally over. His first words upon arrest to the officer were, you got me. What took you so long? Berkowitz very quickly confessed to the shootings uh, in exchange for skipping the death penalty. During his sentencing, presumably referring to Stacy Moskowitz, his last victim, his final murder victim, Berkowitz repeatedly chanted over and over again, Stacy's a whore, Stacy's a whore, Stacy's a whore, at an audible volume so that her grieving parents sitting just behind him could hear. On June 12, 1978, he was sentenced to six life sentences in prison for the six murders, maxing him out at 365 years. In 1987, something happened. A fellow inmate handed him a Gideon's Bible with Psalm 34, 6 highlighted, and it said this, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. And David Berkowitz became a born-again Christian. Now, since that time, he's been a model prisoner. He's led Bible studies. He's given counselors, counseling to hundreds of prisoners. He refuses to participate in the pleas of his attorneys for the, his release when, he, when parole has come up several times now, believing that he should remain in jail for the rest of his life for what he's done. He's saved. He's on his way to heaven. 
There is something about that that bugs me. There is something about that that just doesn't sit well with me. I find myself uh, with a mind problem, and I find myself, when I hear this story, with a heart problem. Uh, In my mind, I think it's just terribly unjust. I think it's terribly unjust. There's something wrong with the whole picture. I turn it over again and again and again in my mind. And and here's, here's what I do. When I do that, here's what I do. I talk myself into thinking that this case, this sounds ridiculous, I know, but bear with me. I talk myself into thinking that somehow I have the higher moral ground here, the higher, higher moral ground than God himself. See, God said he is saved, but God doesn't quite get it, and you know, if he would listen to me, and I understand these justice issues a little bit better. And when I hear myself say that, I realize there is something fundamentally wrong with that equation, and I realize this. I realize that I'm not objecting so much to injustice. I'm objecting to the generosity of God. See, that's what I'm objecting to. And therein lies my heart problem, folks. I got to tell you, somehow I, in my comparison to this man, I come out so far above him. He has no right to share in what I have. He has no right in seeking to deny the grace I freely participate in and have received, grace that I knew I needed and continue to need in my life. You know what? It reveals the darkness of my own heart. It does. It does. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think I understand grace. I have a half a shelf in my study with books on grace. See, I've read the books. I've read the books. But then I realize my twofold problem. One in my mind and one in my heart. And when that happens, when the conflicts in my mind and in my heart rages hot, I become aware that oftentimes for me, grace is much more theory than it is practice. I do work, I serve, I try to do what's right, and you know what, in the end, I expect to be rewarded. I do. See, we offer services, and we expect reward in return. But listen, God gives to all according to what we all need. And what we all need more than anything else is grace. Jewish teachers had a story, this, you know, the Matthew 20 story. They had a, uh, almost an exact story uh, in, in their folklore. I, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm reasonably sure that Jesus took a story that they all knew and he kind of sanctified the story and turned it on its head. He took the same story, I think, and he just changed it around. Now, in the story that the Jewish teachers would, would, would uh, talk about, uh, it was about the Day of Judgment, and, uh, he, and he made an opposite point. The Jewish teachers and, and Israel, they were the ones who worked hard. They were the ones that were there at 6 a.m. And commensurate with their work, they were going to be rewarded in this story more than anybody else. And the people that came at 5 o'clock, those were some of the Gentiles. You know, they're the ones, the righteous Gentiles that came in. They kind of got grafted in in the end. You know, they started following the law. They started doing all that. You know, that's good, good. Okay, you can come in. But they worked an hour. They're going to get a little bit. See, that makes sense to me. I get that. I get the Jewish version 
better than I get the Jesus version. Inside of me, it just kind of gravitates to that other one. It makes sense. It's logical to me. And you know who else it made sense to? Peter. Peter, one chapter before, in chapter 19 and verse 27, Peter said this, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Good question. Good question. He was revealing that he had learned those teachers' lessons well. And in my heart, I think I understand their story better than I do sometimes the Jesus story. And the thing is, when I express those sentiments, which I know I there, I know are there, I prove myself time and again to just understand a little bit about grace, but not all about grace. See, I give myself away time and again. I suspect that is why at times I have found it difficult in my life to accept the forgiveness of God. Sometimes I have. Especially when I sin today in a fashion that I sinned last week. Or worse, 10 minutes ago. See, then I have a real problem. It just, it doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to, to be right. I'm not sure I even like it. I'm not sure I like it at all. The story of chapter 19 of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus, who had, you know, done a lot of good things, who could be saved, blah, the whole thing. You may know that story. Um, you know, and the disciples, Jesus said, you got to sell everything. And, and he said he couldn't do that. And so, and so now the, the disciples look at Jesus and they say, well, if he can't be saved, who's doing all these great things, he's feeding the poor, he's doing all this stuff. If he can't be saved, then who in the world can be saved? See, that was his question. Jesus said, everyone can. Everyone. But it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on what you have. It's based on the Lord of the harvest and what he is willing to give. See, that's what it's based on. So he sums it up in verse 15. This is what he says in verse 15. This is the landowner. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? See, the story isn't about whether we showed up late or whether we showed up early or how hard we worked. In fact, this story, folks, it's really not about us at all. It's about the owner of the vineyard. That's what the story is about. The story is about the owner's generosity that flows not in response to what we've done, but out of his rights and his nature, which is inherently good. It's just who he is. Can you see it? Can you see it at all? You know, uh, there are two Greek words that are important here. The one that's translated generous in verse 15. Verse 15, that word generous. Uh, agathos is a Greek word. It's the only instance in the NIV where it's translated generous. You know what it's translated every other time? Rightly so? Good. Good. Almost every single, in fact, every single other occurrence in the New Testament is translated as good. And, and you know what it means? It means inherently good. It means good in and of itself. Goodness that doesn't ebb, that doesn't flow. It's, it's not based on circumstances or mood or the, worthy, the worthiness of others, but by the nature of someone. Agathos is goodness that's inherent, that's in the character of the possessor, independent of any actions that happen. Independent of anything that happens around it. The owner is Agathos. And he is regardless of whether you've earned it or not. The owner of the vineyard is good. What's more, he's a giver. He's a giver. So what does he want to give? 
Who does he want to give it to? What he wants to give is eternal life. And he wants to give it to everyone. To everyone who believes. Who everyone who would receive it. Even to those who by my standards in no way deserve it. Even to those who by my standards should never be forgiven. Should never be forgiven. Who should never be shown generosity this day, tomorrow, a hundred years from now. Yet, you know what? The generous owner says, come, you too, experience the lavish grace of the owner of the vineyard. Come and experience his grace. And he says, you know what? Sometimes the last will be first, and the first will be last. Matt Redmond sings a song, the words which go like this. From the creation to the cross, then from the cross into eternity, your grace finds me. It finds me. There in the darkest night of the soul, there in the sweetest songs of victory, your grace finds me. So I'm breathing in your grace, and I'm breathing out your praise. I'm breathing in your grace, and I'm breathing out your praise. Forever, I'll be breathing in your grace and breathing out your praise. You see, some people think that the kingdom is filled with people who have worked hard and done a good job and are now receiving their just reward. See, that's what we think. The gist of this message is serving the Lord, but not for what we can get, but because of what he has done. Because the very lowest place in the kingdom of God is far higher than every, any one of us deserves. If we have received what we truly deserve, folks, you know what the Bible says we truly deserve. It is judgment, and it is hell, and it is eternal separation from the Father, from the owner of the vineyard. That's what we deserve. But God doesn't give according to what we deserve. He gives according to what we need, and what we need is grace. Now, you know, my, my, time, my time is gone, but I just I want to give you a couple of things that I take away. Very, very briefly, I take away from the story. You know what the story tells me? It tells me in those fleeting moments when both my mind and my heart straighten out and are in agreement, I realize that I can be forgiven too. I can, and so can you. Perhaps the thing that's always kept you circling around the periphery, being close to the heart of God, never quite taking that step in, never quite jumping in, always at an arm's distance, is because you never felt that you could truly be forgiven. You never really felt that. I know that in those moments when my mind and my heart meet up, it is a glorious reunion, and it makes my heart, in those moments, it makes my heart sing, breathing out your praise. Something else. I learned. Uh, the men who came and bargained in the early morning hours with the landowner, they got what they agreed on. You know what the others did? They cast themselves in the mercy of the, of the, vine, the, the vine owner, the vineyard owner. They, that's what they did. And they got much more, much, much more than they really deserved. They didn't receive what they deserved. They didn't receive justice. They received grace. And you know what? I got to tell you something. Grace is so much better than justice. <laughs> Just, you know, just speaking from personal experience, I got to tell you, you know, it's much better. This story makes me want God's grace at any cost. Sometimes what we perceive as injustice is not. 
Something else. Third thing. Reminds me how much grace I have been given. Now, I've never killed anyone physically, though I have wanted to on several occasions. I have to tell you right now. But you know what? Even the fact that I, I, I admit that, and I do admit that freely. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what? If you do that, you are under the same condemnation as the killer. You're under the same condemnation as the David Berkowitzes of the world. You know, you are in the same moral, moral deficit position as the man who takes a gun and shoots another dead. So I am reminded that my response to the goodness of God's grace in redemption, you know what it must be? Gratitude. That's it. Very simple. Just gratitude. I know there's nothing I have done that I have not first received. Grace propels my worship. It motivates my service. Sir and Kierkegaard gave expression to gratitude, which should be characteristic of the redeemed person. He wrote this. I am a poor wretch whom God took charge of and, f- and for whom he has done so indescribably much more than I could have ever expected that I only long for the peace of eternity in order to do nothing but thank him. Lord Jesus, our prayer should be, help me to focus on your gracious overtures to me, not to others. Not worry about his gracious overtures to others, but instead focus on what you've done to me and to be truly thankful. Last thing. One more thing I learned. It tells me that no matter when a man or a woman receives God's grace, early in the flush of youth, or later in the strength of midday, or even when the shadows are long and lengthening in their life, I am equally dear to God. Equally dear to God. And I will receive enough grace to satisfy. No one who approaches the landowner is going to be sent home hungry. Nobody. What's the kingdom of God like? What characterizes his rule? You know what it is? One word. Grace. Grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that trumps justice. Grace for all who would receive it. All of his gifts are grace, grace, grace. It cannot be earned. It is not deserved. He does not offer a wage, but he offers a gift, not a reward. He offers grace. God doesn't give us according to what we deserve. He gives according to what we need, and what we need is grace. The kingdom of God has a generous owner who is deeply good to you, to you, to you, to everybody in the balcony, and to me. It's not about us. It's about him. And he loves to give. That's why we serve. That's why I serve. Not to get from him something but to give to him. Not because of what he might do if I do this or that, but because of what he has already done. Because of what he has given to us, undeserved, unmerited grace, grace, grace. God doesn't give according to what we deserve. He gives according to what we need. And what we need is what? It's grace. Father, we uh, pray that we would understand the lesson of Matthew 20. The lesson of the owner of the vine. It's about, this story is about you. It's not about us coming at six or nine or 12 or five. It's about you. It's about a gracious God who continues to call and continues to woo and continues to win 
people to the understanding and the knowledge that we have a God who is full of graciousness and full of goodness. It is who you are. You sent your son to die for our sins on the cross of Calvary so that we could be forgiven. Father, I pray that if there is someone here who has never experienced that initial grace, the grace of being cleansed, that they would today say, even as I come, the best way I know how, I want to receive your grace, O oh God. Let them say that this day. And for those of us who maybe have experienced the grace, but we have forgotten, we've just forgotten, I pray that we would be reminded once again that it's start, middle, end. It's all grace, 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 grace that is greater than the sins that we have committed this very hour, God's grace. We pray we'd be reminded of that. Because of Christ, we pray.